Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister here at Westminster and moderator of these forums. We are dedicated to bringing voices of conscience to this podium that we might, with their guidance, address key issues facing our society, and that from an ethical perspective. The issue, the agenda for our coming together today is set in my mind by a poem written by nine-year-old Misha Meyer of El Paso, Texas. She writes, I am the ill earth People have cut down the trees which are my lungs. They have polluted the air which is my brain. They have polluted the streams which are my blood vessels. They have polluted the oceans which are the chambers of my heart. My wrath has gotten gigantic. My wrath is hurricanes and tornadoes. I am the ill earth. If people trash me, I will die and so will they. Misha Meyer, nine years old. To address the environmental challenge, we have with us today Senator Timothy E. Wirth of Colorado, elected to the Senate in November of 1986. In the Senate, he has specialized in the fields of the environment, conventional arms control, budget policy, and financial institutions. He is the author of major Senate legislation addressing the issues of global warming. An avid outdoorsman, Worth has paid special attention to Colorado's conservation, public health, and environmental issues, and has been a leading spokesman for stronger federal clean air laws. He's a member of four Senate committees, armed services, budget, banking, and energy and national resources, or natural resources. He is national chairman of the Alliance to Save Energy. Worth, whose family has lived in Colorado for five generations, grew up in Denver. He earned bachelor and master's degrees at Harvard and a PhD from Stanford. From 1974 to 86, until he was elected to the Senate, he served six terms in the U.S. House of Representatives. Senator Worth's topic for today, critical environmental challenges facing the U.S. Senator Worth, welcome. Pastor Meisel, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and to be able to join such a distinguished uh, group uh, in the audience and your extraordinarily prestigious Westminster Forum series. I also want to thank the McKnight Foundation and my old friend Mike O'Keefe, who is the president of the McKnight Foundation, and tell you all what a pleasure it is to be in Minneapolis. I don't know if you all realize what parallels there are in terms of size, history, and progressivity. Uh, between your fine city and my own of Denver. Uh, great parallels there, and I feel home being back here. 
Also a pleasure to be on Minneapolis Public or Minnesota Public Radio. Uh, we all have been uh, fans of Garrison Keillor uh, for such a long period of time. And uh, I want to assure you that uh, as I talk today about the environment, uh, I am sure that all of us together will be able to produce a Lake Wobegon kind of environment where all the children are above average and Powderhorn biscuits are available to all citizens. As we meet today, our troops are coming home and the country is savoring a renewed sense of self, a significant military victory, a remarkable political achievement, and an enormous justified sense of pride in the courage of our troops and the wisdom of their commanders. Their discipline and skill won another battle as well. President Bush was right to say that the Vietnam Syndrome is dead. And with it, the idea that American power in the world can only do harm. All Americans, including those, myself included, who opposed the start of the fighting in mid-January, welcome this latest proof that the United States is equal to the demands of global leadership. We also welcome an extraordinary, unanticipated victory on the home front as we watched and waited and prayed together for the safety and success of our men and women in the distant desert, Americans at home found new strength and a sense of shared purpose. The war, the war reminded us how much, in this vast country, we are neighbors still. In the midst of our diversity, it restored us to community. In the countless individual acts of generosity to the families of those who have been called to duty, Americans put aside their self-absorption and self-seeking. They wrote a collective epitaph for the me decade. A young friend of mine, recently ordained, expressed very well the unifying emotion so many of us have experienced. As I saw our American flag raised, he told his congregation, I felt one with a grim purpose and determination that I haven't felt in a long time. And I felt this pride, this patriotic bond, this sense of the greatness of our land. Now we have to build on that determination and that greatness. At home and abroad, we are challenged to move on without losing what we have gained. To keep our momentum and our cohesion, we need to convert this renewed American spirit from the intense emotions of war to the everyday demands of peace, justice, and growth. We've provided our power against an uncommon en enemy. We need to mobilize it now for the common good. There are many tests to which we can and should recommit ourselves. We have grave social, racial, and economic divisions to heal at home. We have a recession to overcome, an educational crisis to turn around, and a health care system to salvage. We have a fight on our hands in international trade and a stable peace to help build not only in the Middle East but in Central and Eastern Europe as well. The Cold War is over and gone is the old superpower confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union. In its place, in a different form and from a different source, comes a new test of our power and our resolve. On a planetary scale, we now face only one superpower. Its name is nature, and we must make ourselves its ally. We cannot beat it. The more of it we destroy, the less likely we are to survive either as a nation or a species. 
our national security, and this is a dramatic change from all familiar concepts of that term, our national security now depends on the environmental security of the whole Earth. That is a novel definition of an alarming truth. I hope we will take this as the starting point for an urgent campaign for a new commitment of America's strength to America's national purpose. The signs of global ecological decay have been visible for many years, but the world has been slow to understand them. We must recognize and respond to them in this decade or see the processes accelerate perhaps beyond hope of control. For the truth is that the trend has reached a critical level and time is running out. Six danger signs show how serious the crisis has become. First, land loss. We are losing the land to grow the food necessary to support even today's population. Mankind has destroyed 10% of the globe's arable land, and the destruction continues at an alarming rate. About two-thirds of the world's land is used to grow crops, provide pasture, or grow forests. The remaining third is either too cold, too dry, or too mountainous to serve the needs of civilization. Still, there is no let-up in the demand for arable land. Second, the hole in the ozone layer over the Antarctic has grown larger than the entire North American continent, and ozone loss is showing up in the Arctic as well. The world is making encouraging progress to contain this threat, but it is likely to grow before it declines. Third, the decimation of the tropical rainforests and the destruction of species bode ill for the future of the globe. Each second, Man destroys a section of rainforest larger than a football field. Each minute, species are lost that contain a vast store of genetic information, a kind of anti-intellectual arrogance akin to burning the great library at Alexandria each minute of each hour of each day. Fourth, the world is draining and polluting its water resources at an alarming rate. We in the United States read of epidemics in Shanghai caused by a horribly polluted Yangtze River, or we anticipate the war and refugees that will result from competition and overuse of the Jordan, the Nile, and the Euphrates. But here at home, the Ogallala Aquifer under the high plains drops by feet every year, the Everglades are drying out, and the Colorado River no longer even reaches the Gulf of California. The increased carbon content of the Earth's atmosphere is a fifth symptom, increasingly well-recognized and devilishly complicated. In the scientific community, the question is no longer if increased levels of carbon dioxide drive up global temperature, but how much, how fast, and where. Even if we, the largest offender, are successful in leveling off our emissions, what do we have to offer China or India? These countries are embarked upon very ambitious economic development programs based on the burning of dirty brown coal, the worst emitter of carbon dioxide. China is presently at 7% of our per capita consumption of energy, and India, 3%. Both plan to double their per capita energy use by early in the 21st century. With more than a billion people each, that's a lot of capits for us to be concerned about. Last and central to all the others is the spiral of population growth. In my lifetime, the population of the world has doubled. 
If every 10 years we go on adding a China's worth of human beings to the planet, the human population will triple from 5.3 billion to 15 billion by the latter half of the next century. To stand by and let that happen would be to condemn not just nature, but humanity as well. Uncontrolled population growth will doom every hope of stable economic development in the third world, every initiative to combat po poverty, every humanitarian endeavor. Difficult as it is, we must address this issue and find the political wisdom to separate the, the population crisis from the abortion issue. If we despair of providing a decent education, employment opportunities, health care, and all the other elements of the quality of life to much of the globe's present 5.3 billion people, what can we anticipate when that population doubles and then triples, and most of the growth in the, with most of the growth in the poorer, less developed world? The economic, political, and economic, ecological ramifications are staggering. Universal access to voluntary family planning services, the empowerment of women around the globe, and population stabilization by the year 2000 must be primary objectives of U.S. foreign policy in any world order, old or new. Some of these dangerous trends are the product of poverty. Poor people in Asia, Africa, and Latin America are in desperate need of fuel and land to work. Their needs and their number, however, make them powerful, if unwitting, agents of destruction, whether in tropical rainforests or on fragile hillsides, a menace to their own future and to the environment. But poverty isn't the only or even the worst toxic force, to, force at work on the global environment. The appetite of the affluent for timber products is just as much of a menace to forests in Indonesia, the Philippines, Brazil, and the United States. The bulk of the underground water being drained away from our future flows into the shining cities of the haves, not the parched lands of the have-nots. Those same cities, and we who live in them and the way in which we live in them, are of course the furnaces of global warming. The fossil fuels burned for power, industry, transport, and heating are the primary source of carbon accumulation in the atmosphere, and the United States is the world's largest, most extravagant consumer. We've made some admirable progress in the United States. Rivers no longer catch on fire. We've removed lead from gasoline, and President Bush and the Congress recently joined together to enact the monumental Clean Air Act amendments. But lest we be smug in our accomplishments, the fact that each American consumes as much energy as 33 people living on the Indian subcontinent should remind us of the responsibility we have to maintain a stable population in the United States. Likewise, while we are concerned about the plight of Lagos or Delhi, Rio or Bangkok, we've done, we've, done, we've done little here at home to connect with many of our own citizens. People of color tend to be those living near toxic waste dumps. People who are poor live downwind of refineries. Black and Hispanic children are more likely to be brain damaged from lead. Yet few environmental programs or organizations have reached these populations in our own backyard. Maybe our greatest failure is our lack of a national energy policy. Our appetite for energy is consuming our future. As we have just seen in the war against Iraq, it already drives our calculations of vital national interest by making Persian Gulf oil literally a life or death commodity.
and as it degrades the environment on which life depends, our addiction to high-carbon content fuels is making us our children's most dangerous enemies. The longer we wait to take effective action to cure global warming, the more we endanger our own security. For us in the United States, the most obvious and probably most attainable strategy for the 1990s must be the integration of environmental and energy policy. We need it for the sake of safety, of economic health, and of ecological sanity. As we mobilized and, uni and united to protect a vital national interest in the Persian Gulf, we should now mobilize and unite ourselves and our allies for a new and urgent campaign to protect our common future. Unfortunately, our leaders are letting us down. In the face of very real risks, drought, flooding, and uncontrollable mass migrations of environmental refugees, the administration that should be readying us to fight a global storm is refusing even to raise a defensive shield. The President's men, particularly Mr. Sununu and Mr. Darman, have been dragging more feet than a centipede. Just last month, they managed again just last month, they managed again to stifle international attempts to lower greenhouse gas emissions. Worse, when it was announced, the administration's long-awaited energy program turned out to be a surrender to the minimalist, short-term thinking of the 1980s. It does not deserve to be called a strategy unless our strategy is to delay and evade. Such tactics just won't do the job. They are unequal to the emergency we face and to the newfound sense of shared national purpose that the last weeks and months have brought us. What we need is a real battle plan to defend the global environment, a campaign that begins at home, that recruits all Americans as citizen soldiers, that shares the sacrifices to be born, and that wins a lasting balance between man and nature. The campaign should start with an energy policy that sticks to a few basic concepts priority for energy efficiency and conservation, environmental balance, long-term thinking, and the realization that alternative fuels, not increased conventional production, offer the best lasting solution. Such a campaign poses a challenge worthy of American ingenuity and determination. It gives us a mission that can, that can unite us for the long term, as the war against Iraqi aggression united us for a shorter time. Let me touch on each of these energy priorities, starting with conservation. As the Department of Energy reported after 15 months of nationwide hearings, quote, the loudest single message was to increase energy efficiency in every sector of energy use, unquote. But the national energy strategy that emerged recently and was sent up to the Congress by the White House provides precious little to make America more efficient. It does not propose higher fuel economy standards for transportation sector, where we use the overwhelming majority of oil. It does not deal with new building and appliance standards. It ignores the regulatory reform issues that would stimulate utility investments in conservation. Energy efficiency is good energy policy, good environmental policy, and good economic policy. It must be the centerpiece of any national energy strategy. Because world markets are now and will be for some time saturated by oil as they were in the 1980s, 
Price will not be the force that shapes energy policy. Environmental security, instead, must be the driving consideration. To a degree, it already is. The Clean Air Act was, in part, energy policy. Discussions about global warming are, in part, energy policy. The President did a masterful job of assembling a global coalition against Saddam Hussein. He proved what we all know. American leadership is essential to international action. We must draw that same lesson on the battlefield for environmental security. We must make ourselves leaders again in a cooperative world effort that integrates energy and environmental policy. As part of that process, our energy policy must also take a longer view. We must get off the roller coaster of rising and falling prices, dependence on imports. These play havoc with our economy. Instead, our goals must be to reduce oil consumption and develop real alternatives to oil use. Thinking further ahead means thinking smarter now. And one shift is to make the powers of the marketplace work for our environmental goals. That was the idea behind Project 88, which I wrote with Senator John Heinz of Pennsylvania, in which we proposed that our environmental objectives also have a major economic component. The introduction of tradable permits, for example, will reduce the compliance costs of last year's Clean Air Amendments by at least a billion dollars a year. Thinking smarter also makes it clear that we can't produce our way out of the current energy dilemma. That course only temporarily boosts domestic production. It does nothing for our long-term interests or the environment. It's, technical, it's technically feasible to squeeze some more oil out of pristine areas in Alaska, off the California, Atlantic, Florida, or Gulf coasts. But when that runs out, what will we do? We will have to come back to the same tough questions that we face now. Where does our thirst stop? Instead of a line in the sand, it's time to draw a line at the water's edge. The ecological treasure of the Arctic coastal plain, offshore California and offshore Florida, North Carolina and Massachusetts, is too great to squander. Drilling there might, and I emphasize might, give us a temporary boost while delaying the inevitable tough decisions. But it would cost us important ecological values that we can't ever get back. Of special importance this year is the danger threatened for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. That is an area that simply must not be drilled. And that's a principle that simply should not be compromised. Based on our commitment to conservation, to integrating energy and environmental goals, to thinking smarter and longer term, we can produce a comprehensive energy and environmental strategy. The administration's own studies show that relatively easy and modest initiatives can cut our energy consumption by 20 percent. Unhappily, the President's plan only went to 3 percent at most. They said we could get to 20 percent with relative ease. And truly bold initiatives can cut our $400 billion energy bill in half. Already, we use twice as much energy per unit of gross national product as our toughest trading partners the Germans and the Japanese. We must put new life into our search for alternatives to oil. As one way to build a new energy future, we must harness our abundant supplies of clean-burning natural gas. 
In addition, the search for alternatives must include an aggressive program to demonstrate the commercial power of solar, hydrogen, and other renewable energy sources, and a new research program to see if we can ever get nuclear to work right. Solar is on the cusp of commercial acceptance and provides us with great resources as well as a major trade opportunity. In the 1970s, we learned that national energy policy is not without its pitfalls. It's an enormously difficult and politically challenging task. Powerful interests carry huge veto power, but it must be done, and it can only be done if we have leadership from the White House. The President has won enormous popularity. Now he must put it to use and make himself Commander-in-Chief on the home front, strategist and leader of a drive to win national security through environmental security. And Americans are ready for such a summons. Consensus is building. The scientific community at home and abroad has analyzed and weighed the evidence of environmental danger and agreed upon its gravity. Concerned about health, looking to posterity, and alarmed about the degradation of our globe, the public at large has accepted the same conclusions. And people have gotten angry. What I hear is a shout that combines alarm with commitment. It's the famous line from the film Network, but with a positive twist. I'm mad as hell, and I'm going to do something about it. There is a can-do spirit that has made us a great nation. It's the spirit that brought us victory in World War II and sustained the vast effort to rebuild in the ruins of that war. Renewed now and ready to be mobilized in another great cause, it can sustain our pride and ensure our future. Grassroots community involvement from churches, schools, civic groups, community meetings like this, and government itself. Teaching by example can lead to new recycling programs, activism in the simple task of tree planting, and clearing houses for information. The abstract notion of energy can be brought home to each individual. For example, it's abstract to know that an energy-efficient light bulb produces 30 to 70 percent energy savings. It's reality when an alliance of ministers in Denver markets those bulbs. Each one saves 250 pounds of coal and enriches the congregation's treasury at the same time. In Santa Barbara, recycling programs remained abstract in new subdivisions until the developers caught on and got children to spearhead the program their parents joined up very quickly. In Grand Junction, Colorado, tree planting was abstract until school and environmental groups united and forged a plan to redevelop the Colorado River waterfront, the economic opportunity brought along the City Council and the Chamber of Commerce. At Army bases in Europe, energy conservation was abstract until we changed the law and let the soldiers keep some of the money saved on the condition that they allocated to the base schools educating their children. Energy bills went down, and the schools got better. So much of the battle for energy conservation is a family affair, mobilizing the strongest influences, the ones that are closest to home. And of all of those influences, the moral imperative should be, in the end, the strongest. If we meet these challenges in the 1990s, 
we could pass to our children a new century, a new commitment, and a new ethic. As important as protecting the environment is for our health and aesthetics, there is a deeper moral obligation to this task. We simply cannot overlook our responsibility to be stewards of the natural world. In Ecclesiastes, we read these words written over 2,000 years ago. When God created the first man, he led him round all the trees in the Garden of Eden. God said to him, see my works, how beautiful and praiseworthy they are. Everything I have created has been created for your sake. Think of this and do not corrupt it, for there will be no one to set it right after you. How different we might be if an earlier, and I believe more accurate, translation of Genesis had been the one that came down to us. The word dominion changes to stewardship. Let me explain. Instead of being given dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, mankind had understood instead that we were charged by God to cultivate and care for the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Cultivate and care replace dominion, and we become stewards, not masters. These words are the underpinnings of a morality that emphasizes not our selfish, immediate interests, but rather the long-term interests of all humanity and all creation. Global environmental decline, or the preservation of God's creation, is the great moral and ethical question of our time. Survival is at stake. The answer and the obligation is to begin to turn things around so that it isn't beyond hope by the time our grandchildren come of age. This is an enormous responsibility. It overwhelms all others. We have no choice but to live up to it, to its challenge, and to its opportunity. Thank you all very much for asking me to be with you this afternoon, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Wirth, for the Bible study lesson that, in fact, <laughs> we should be stewards rather than seeking dominion over the earth. You have set a moral challenge before us, and we thank you, and we hope that we will heed. Let me indicate at this time to the group gathered here that if you must leave uh, the uh, group, now is the time to do it. This is also the time to pass questions to the aisles uh, that you have filled out while the talk has progressed. Let me remind our radio audience that you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, and that you've been listening to Senator Timothy Wirth, Senator from Colorado, speaking on critical environmental challenges facing the U.S. The co-sponsor today is the McKnight Foundation. They join forces with us three times a year in presenting uh, important ethical issue-oriented 
forums, and we thank them for their encouragement. The radio audience is uh, reminded that you, too, have opportunity to present questions. You may simply call the church at 332-3421, and you're encouraged to do so. Senator Wirth, would you return to the podium, sir, and we'll start uh, sending some questions your way. It's interesting, the Bible that is right here is open to Ecclesiastes. Uh -huh. See, somebody out there is saying, or up there is saying, <laughs> we're all out of being the same being. There you go. Just to anticipate some of the yellow cards that are coming up here, would you care to say something about the situation in Kuwait and, and how that's impacting the whole environmental issue for the world? I think it's interesting that uh, as we come out of the war in the Persian Gulf and are aware of the enormous ecological damage that was done by a relatively small war compared to what we've been anticipating might happen over the last 40 years, I think that we have learned uh, increasingly that war is an obsolete concept for technical reasons, if not others. Man's power of destruction is so great. Man's power of destruction is so great, and the havoc that we can now wreak upon the planet is so broad that we are now finding ourselves, I hope, shying back from it. Let me give you another example. In addition to these thousands of the thousand oil wells burning in the Persian Gulf, I'm also a member of the Armed Services Committee, and I remember about four years ago flying high above the Rhine River. It was an absolutely clear fall day. You could see a long way. I could see four nuclear power plants, four. We were at that point in a major confrontation with the Soviet Union. We were talking about various weapon strategies, and I said to myself, you know, if there were war, what would be one of the first things that would be destroyed? A nuclear power plant going right into the Rhine, potential of a, of a meltdown there, and destroying everything down the Rhine River, which is so much of, it's like the Mississippi in terms of being the, the center of Europe and of uh, so much industrial power. I mean, just that simple act relatively simple act of destroying something as powerful as a nuclear power plant. You know, again, it makes you pause. What are we thinking about? Think about Chernobyl and what happened there and multiply that smack in the middle uh, of Europe. So I think all of this gives us pause, and I would hope that if there is a, another one of the lessons that comes out of the Persian Gulf is to understand that as we think about confrontations and as we think about weaponry, we also must think about the impact that that weaponry can have on our environment and how remarkably damaging we can be uh, to this globe. A question from the audience. What can be done about people like us? Minnesotans have a naturally beautiful state. We participate in the fruits of our industrial society. We have a good and stable economy, profess to take care of our disadvantage. Yet, we believe that our waste should be dumped on someone else. We are closing down our landfills. We are fighting the incineration of municipal solid waste. Every county in Minnesota has refused to consider a hazardous waste facility. And most offensive of all, we are expending precious energy and resources 
to truck the ash from our household garbage to Illinois and North Dakota? What can be done on the federal level to force all Americans to accept their responsibility for waste facilities? Well, why should it be that the federal government has to force people to do what they ought to do anyway? I mean, Americans have a wonderfully ambivalent feeling about the federal government. On the one hand, they hate the federal government, the 15th of April and everything that comes along with it. But on the other hand, they turn around and they say to Uncle Sam, oh, I'm not willing to do X, Y, and Z. Now you do it for me and make me do it. You know, what we have got to do is to develop a set of programs where it makes sense for everybody to do the right thing. Some of the examples cited in the questions are perfect ones, recycling. You know, we have to make it worthwhile, and it's becoming that way very rapidly, for people to recycle. I mean, you go to the grocery store, and so do I, and you spend as much time as I do trying to get off of a lot of things this enormous amount of packaging that surrounds it all and ends up going into your garbage, which goes into the landfill, which fills it all up. Slowly but surely, companies are coming to understand that they are well served by having less packaging and it's cheaper. The um, uh, Walmart, you know, Sam Walton and the Walmart, uh, now become the largest retailer in the country, has embarked upon a very challenging program for all of their suppliers to produce environmentally benign goods and environmentally benign packaging. The marketplace is giving out some signals. Senator Hines and I are, re are uh, writing legislation for the recycling of oil to create market incentives so that that oil which comes out of the crankcases of everybody in this, uh, in this hall has an economic value. Rather than going down the drain as it does today, there are some 14 Exxon Valdezes per year that get dumped down the drain of used crankcase oil from American consumers. We've got to create an incentive, economic incentive, that it's worthwhile recycling, to recycle tires, to recycle, to recycle newspapers, to recycle lead-acid batteries, to recycle plastics. Minneapolis is starting to do a lot of these things under the very able leadership of your, uh, of your mayor, you know, who is terrific and a very enlightened city council. You know, we've got to keep doing those things. You know, we can all do them. We can all do them. Of course we can. Thank you. Another question from the floor. Is active support of citizen organizations like the Sierra Club an effective way to push our leaders in the right direction? Of course it is. I mean, grassroots politics are what make this country change. I mean, let's just think about what's happened since uh, 1960. You know, in 1963, 64, we had a Voting Rights Act and a Civil Rights Act. Those did not get passed because a group of people sitting around the Judiciary Committee in the United States Senate said that was a good thing to do. It happened because of grassroots marching across the country, particularly in the South. The war in Vietnam did not stop because a group of people sitting around the war room in the Pentagon said this is not a smart thing for us to do anymore. It stopped because people marched down streets and said stop it. The environmental movement didn't start in this country. Earth Day didn't occur 20 years ago because of what some people thought high above the silent city somewhere. It happened because of grassroots involvement. The abortion issue and the choice issue didn't come back to mainstream America because of anything except a middle-class walk in Washington, a march in Washington two years ago. 
again, taking government back to people. The environmental movement is just like that. Absolutely imperative that that happen at the grassroots, and absolutely imperative that people in this country maintain the accountability of their elected officials on behalf of the environment. Absolutely imperative. Every member of the Congress will tell you that he or she is an environmentalist. Don't believe it. <laughs> Here's another question on the issue of the used oil bill. The environmental journals that I read indicate that you have a good voting record on environmental issues. Yet you were an author of legislation last session to burn waste automotive oil instead of recycling it. And your bill exempted the burners from the pollution controls that hazardous waste facilities already have. Is used oil such a tremendous problem that we have to hold off on environmental protection? Well, the question has a good beginning and then a wrong set of assumptions. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, it's a very interesting issue on the environment. We, we have all of this used oil. Right? And what uh, we're doing is trying to develop an incentive program where you make a, you develop a set of incentives for the people who make oil, who can oil, to recycle used oil. And it's a relatively simple thing to do. You can get the oil from, I don't know what the local uh, operation is, you know, Mr. Clean or whoever it is that changes your oil, you know, fast and speedy, I don't know what the local one is. But you know, your gas station changes your oil, you get them to keep it, store it, keep it, and then give it to the recycler. And you can develop, we have a, this program that we have in mind, would say that uh, a certain percentage, say 40%, of all oil sold in the country, motor oil sold in the country, would have to have as its base recycled oil. You know, therefore, everybody has to do that up to that certain amount, and you let the marketplace do it. One of the anomalies, and that's not to burn it or whatever, that's to truly recycle it. One of the anomalies is that oil is treated, or is the EPA is, is thinking about treating oil as a hazardous material and classifying it as a hazardous material. Well, the minute you classify a substance like oil, used oil as a hazardous material, anybody who wants to handle that oil has got to train its workers in a different way. Their liabilities go up very, very dramatically. Their insurance problems increase significantly. And what happens, the labeling used oil a hazardous material drives the people who want to recycle oil out of the business because they say it's not worth my while anymore to do this. I end up with all these liabilities. So what we're proposing doing is saying let's not classify used oil as a hazardous material for five years while we embark upon this major program to get it recycled. The purpose is not to classify used oil one way or another. The purpose is to get used oil out of the drains and out of the sewers and out of the landfills back into cans of oil. That's the purpose. So if we can make it productive to do so, let the economics drive it, we can probably have a lot greater impact. And that's a little bit of, one would say, counter command and control thinking. The traditional command and control of, the environment, of much of the environmental movement, or some of it, would say that you can only do things by some regulation or command from EPA are from Washington. We're saying, wait a minute. Now, there's a very, very large marketplace out there, and let's get that marketplace to help us solve the problem. 
Another question from the floor. If we ever get nuclear energy right, will it pass muster with the strong environmental groups? Well, that's a very good question. And it's uh, with the advent of an understanding about global warming and with our understanding that much of the rest of the world is developing very rapidly and wants to develop and needs a power source, that probably suggests to us that we have to rethink nuclear power. Now, Americans, for very good reason, have a kind of nuclear neuralgia. You know, we look at Three Mile Island, we look at the enormous cost of power plants, and then we look at the absolute disaster of Chernobyl, and we say, with good reason, nuclear has not worked, don't do nuclear. But then you say to yourself, now wait a minute, what are my grandchildren and great-grandchildren going to use? Maybe solar will come into its own in a major way, maybe not. Maybe there'll be other alternatives, maybe not. But don't we have a responsibility to do the research now to start all over again on nuclear and see if, in fact, we can make it work? Now, that's a, for me to be saying that sort of a thing is a little bit like, say, Richard Nixon going to China, if you make that point. And I'm not supposed to say that, but I do I say I think it's very important. Right? We must rethink it and see if we can solve the waste problem, see if we can solve the uh, non-proliferation problem, see if we can solve the safety problem, you know, those, and solve the cost problem. Those are the major issues surrounding nuclear. I don't know if we can do it or not, but I think we have an obligation to future generations to start that research now. If we don't do it, we don't do it. But if we don't try, we have an absolute chance of not coming up uh, with a solution, with solutions to those very grave problems. Thank you for tackling that tough question. Here's one from the radio audience. Would Senator Worth support a gas tax of a dollar per gallon? Well, a dollar per gallon is probably not something that we would have overnight, but certainly increasing the uh, price of energy is going to be a major part and should be a major part of any comprehensive uh, energy strategy. Last fall on taxes. That was what the election in large part in November of 1990 was all about. And the country overwhelmingly said we don't want more taxes and we don't trust giving more taxes to Uncle Sam. And the president has said, has reaffirmed his earlier commitment, I think, of reading his lips. And people are now once again reading his lips, and we're not going to have any new taxes. If that's a political reality, then you say to yourself, well, maybe we, there might be some way to think differently about this. Currently, Senator Moynihan and others are talking about a, a cut in Social Security taxes. As you all know, Social Security has a very, very large surplus that is building up, and that surplus is being used to fund the deficit. Now, we don't need all that money in Social Security, but it's building up. Social Security is a pretty regressive tax. It's a payroll tax. It's a very regressive tax. And it's not fair on working Americans, middle class and working Americans. So there's some equity reasons and some economic reasons for cutting Social Security taxes. But if you do that, cut those taxes, you also increase the federal deficit, which is currently at an all-time high. So while there are values of cutting Social Security taxes, there are, on the other side, disadvantages because you increase the deficit, which is already $325 billion a year, largest in our nation's history, and we don't want it to get any bigger. Well, maybe we ought to think, if we if we're, want to seriously look 
at the price of energy as a way to help define a long-term energy strategy of making a shift between energy taxes and Social Security taxes. The American public wouldn't be paying any new taxes. You'd be shifting from one source to another and could do so in a way that could be made much more equitable and could also uh, solve some, help, to help us to solve some of the longer-term problems that I was addressing in my speech. That's going to take a kind of a gift of leadership and an advocacy that's uh, pretty hard to find right now in a day and age when people just don't want to talk about more taxes. I'd like to pause here just a moment and recognize the fact that uh, Mayor Don Fraser of Minneapolis is in the audience today. I know that you and he were colleagues in Congress, I believe, in the 1970s. So. And he, your agendas are his, his agendas, if I understand him. He's a terrific mayor. You all are very lucky to have him. <laughs> Another question from the floor. Because the environment is a world problem, why not world solutions through a United Nations environmental agency, for instance? Well, that's right. I mean, we should have world solutions. It is a world problem. But the world needs leadership. The world follows us economically. The world follows us culturally. The world looks to us for leadership. And if we cannot, for example, solve our problems you know, related to the public lands and the fact that we're doing some very damaging things to our own public lands, how can we go to Brazil and say to the Brazilians, don't tear down uh, your rainforest? If we are not able to figure out how to engage people of color, people who have less money in the set of environmental issues, if we can't do that in our own backyard, how can we possibly you know, go to Bangkok or go to Shanghai or go to Rio and say to the poorest people there, become environmentalists, when they say, wait a minute, how can I possibly think about the globe in the year 2000 when I can't think about you know, can't get bread on my table for tomorrow night. You know, we've got to figure out how to do those things in our own backyard in order to assume the sort of leadership the world is, is asking us for. And that means that we have a lot of these things to get in line in our own backyard while we also think about the national, about the international world. The United Nations is great. The United Nations needs leadership. Any place needs leadership. And that has to come from us. Here's a profound question. What do you think of the great styrofoam versus paper cup debate? The church is in the midst of it. I'm all for it. <laughs> You're for the debate. I'm for the debate. I'm for paper. <laughs> beware the uh, cups that say recyclable. You know, re re beware anything, right, that says recyclable if, in fact, it gets recycled right into a landfill. Because if things are recycled materials and they go right into the landfill, and there's no way that they're going to uh, degrade or whatever, they're just not going to do it. So you have to be very careful. I mean, it's one thing, it's in wonderful community programs where everybody collects their newspapers all week long. And you take those newspapers and you put them out on the front step on Friday morning. An extra truck comes by and picks up all of the newspapers, so you have a truck just full of newspapers but that truck ends up going to the same landfill that everything else does and dumps the newspaper in the landfill. Why? Again, because there's no market for that newspaper. So what we have to do is think a lot smarter about creating a market 
you know for that recycled paper so that when we put it all out there something happens to it economics has a lot to do with a lot of this we have to remember that always remember that what is the likelihood that congress will pass a national energy policy substantially different from uh, President Bush's proposal during this Congress? Well, you got pretty good. I think mean, there were some good things in the President's proposal. He had some beginning steps on alternative fuels. They had some tentative steps in the area of conservation. There's been a lot of rhetoric. And the President himself has said, we must do this. So that's a framework. And then we have to fill it in and fill it in with conservation, alternative fuels, and economic incentives should be the guts of a national energy program. The bookends of that program will be the heated debates that we have over the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and whether that should be drilled, and the heated debate over whether we should build nuclear power plants and fast track them or just do research. Those are the nuclear debate and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge debate are going to be kind of the bookends on either side of any energy policy. We'll get through those and then I think we have a good opportunity to flesh out what ought to be in the center of an energy policy. Another question, why is so little being done when the acid rain uh, damage is, is so clearly identified and devastating? Well, a great deal is being done uh, related to acid rain. We just passed this uh, terribly important, significant Clean Air Act amendments last year. And that was a major undertaking and should have a very significant impact on acid rain in the United States. We'll be cutting the level of uh, sulfur dioxide emissions by 50% uh, in the United States and doing it uh, in, a, in an innovative uh, and, and uh, cost-effective way. So major steps are being taken. It's the most, I think, probably the single most important maybe the single most important piece of environmental legislation ever passed in the United States. And the President Bush deserves a great deal of credit for putting that idea forward and being helpful in breaking the log jam, which had infected the acid rain debate for at least a decade. Do you have any new ideas of ways to encourage population control without incurring the resistance and wrath of various groups? <laughs> No. <laughs> no, I mean, you're going to. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't. I mean, the population issue is enormously difficult. People don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. And yet we must. It is at the root of so much uh, that relates to the future of the globe. The first and most important political step that we must do is to figure out how to separate a discussion of long-term population the dignity of human life, the ability of individuals to live up to their potential. All of those issues related to population, you have to separate those out from the abortion issue. There is no reason why we cannot come to grips with an understanding that the population issue stands by itself. It stands by itself. If the world, if we are having as much trouble as we are today, providing a dignified life to the five and a half billion people on the face of the globe, what's that going to look like when the world population doubles or triples? You know, if we are concerned 
about the dignity of each individual, if we are concerned about sustaining something of this creation that we were all given, you know, that has got to be separated out from uh, the issue over, over the issue about abortion. And that means, once you come to that understanding that the size and scope of population is deeply threatening, then we can come back and say, with most groups, I believe, that providing family planning services, making those available to every, uh, every person in the world is something that is feasible and ought to be done. Focusing on the empowerment of women around the world is feasible and ought to be done. And that has got to be something that we in the United States lead on. We were doing very well in the 60s and 70s. The United States was the world leader on population measures. And the key individual in the United States Congress on that, or one of the two or three most important people in the Congress on that, was a then young congressman from Houston named George Bush. George Bush led the fray on international family planning. Since then, he's done a 180. And one of the things that we have to do is to give him the opportunity to take another 180 and assume that same leadership that he so carefully did and, and did so well. Uh, in the late 60s. Generally speaking, the EPA is viewed, viewed as inefficient and poorly managed, and uh, environmental regulations too complex and often internally inconsistent. What do you suggest be done with EPA to improve its performance? Well, I'm not sure that I agree with the uh, assumptions of the, the premises of the question. Mm -hmm. I mean, all, and there is no government agency that I know that is as well managed as a very efficient uh, private company. It just doesn't happen. That's not the nature of government, not the reward structure, and so on. But I think uh, EPA has uh, taken on enormous responsibilities. We have doubled the responsibilities of EPA since 1980. Uh, but uh, under President Reagan, uh, the budget was cut by more than 50%. So we doubled their responsibilities, but cut their ability to meet those responsibilities by 50%, and then we complain about the fact that they're not doing the job we asked them to do. Well, it's impossible to do that. You know, they cannot do it. I think Bill Riley has done a very good job at EPA, is certainly a first-rate spokesman for the environment uh, as the director of the Environmental Protection Administration, and I, I would hope that there would be more people that would support him and the kinds of things that he is trying to do. Senator Wirth, uh, early on in your comments, you mentioned Garrison Keillor. He stood where you stood a couple of years ago at one of our forums. He ran through questions so quickly that I ran out, and he said, well, let me ask you a couple. And uh, he said, for instance, why is the Bible open here to the book of Jeremiah? And my response was, well, for one thing, we were hoping you would be prophetic. In fact, it's where the Bible opens down the middle. <laughs> but you, That's sir. That's between me and Garrison Keillor, right? I mean, I'm a political creature. You try to cut it right down the middle, and Garrison Keillor's always right out there on the cutting edge. Yeah. Well, you've been prophetic, and the book was rightly opened at the book of Ecclesiastes, and you've led us to realize all the more that we do face one superpower, the world of nature, and need to make it our ally. And we thank you for coming to us. Thank you all very much. Thank you.